Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, managing editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to Brian Bergoon, professor of international and comparative political economy in the Department of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam, and Professor Peter Trubowitz, professor of international relations and director of the Phelan U.S. Center at LSE, Associate Fellow at Chatham House, about their new book, Geopolitics and Democracy, which will be published in July 2023 by Oxford University Press. The book looks at the rise of anti-globalist forces, which are against international cooperation and multilateralism, and how this connects to the decline of the welfare state and citizens' perceptions about threats from abroad. I began our discussion by asking Professor Bergun and Professor Trubowitz about the main takeaways from their book and why they wrote it. Let me take a crack at why we wrote it. Um, and probably the first thing to say is that this whole project grew out of a joint LSE Hurdy School initiative of the Derendorf Project that was focused on Europe's future. And Brian and I were in one of the working groups that um, was examining the kind of trajectory of uh, transatlantic relations. And so we got to talking about what's going on between the U.S. and Europe and kind of the greater West um, more generally, that is, including Western uh, democracies in in Asia. And one thing led to another. um, And, you know, the the. that project led to a couple of articles that we did and, and ultimately um, this book, uh, Geopolitics and Democracy. And I think somewhere along the way, in fact, I remember exactly where this was along the way. Um, it was 2016. Um, so there was the Brexit vote here in, in, um, in the UK. And, and then uh, later that year, um, Donald Trump's um, election as president. And the general feeling at the time, there was a lot of commentary about how those events really redefined things. And um, they were the source of anti-globalism that was beginning. You could see it as well um, in Europe. You could see a kind of uptick, um, a surge uh, in uh, European countries. And there was a a sense that something fundamentally changed in 2016. And I think what Brian and I thought was that what happened in 2016 was important, but that actually it had to be put in a deeper, larger historical context, and that the roots of what unfolded in 2016 could actually be traced back to the 1990s um, and to the end of the Cold War and the kind of um, the uh, political restructuring and shifts that that set in motion. And so, you know, the more we explored it, the more we thought that this argument was really worth um, exploring um, and systematically testing. Um, and that's what this book really tries to do. Well, I mean, I'll add uh, one thing as a general background to the motivation of the project and, and what we tried to do with the book. So we have yet to fully summarize the argument, which we'll do, I think, momentarily. But it's important to clarify why Peter and I thought we wanted to work together on this. Um, Both Peter and I work within the social sciences in a world where there's a lot of fragmentation between international relations and the study of domestic politics or domestic political economy. And both of us believe that that fragmentation or that, that, you know, um, divide is, is problematic. So you really can't understand a big international relations development without looking at the domestic political uh, developments, uh, political life, and and vice versa. So both of our works and our uh, coming into this project were informed by that sort of insight, but we had never worked together really to push that insight. And when it came to this particular problem that Peter mentioned, uh, you know, this idea that there are probably deeper roots to 2016's explosions, implosions, um, uh, we knew that this this dynamic was important. And and a second divide also informed our collaboration and our work, which is this idea that if you want to understand 
um, security issues. You need to look at political economic issues. If you want to understand political economic issues, you need to look at security issues. And and we had that insight again within a a field, I think a a discipline where there's a, a tendency to um, you know to work in one or another of those silos. Um, security people talk to the security folk about bombs and rockets and security dilemmas and 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 difficulties, military strategic questions. And the political economy, people tend to, you know, look at social policy and redistribution. So Peter and I both had this sort of fundamental insight, a fundamental hunch, I guess you could say, that, that that's problematic, particularly for the dynamics of, you know, the 2016 implosions, these big changes, uh, a turning against the, um, yeah, the openness to the world and liberal internationalism, that you really needed to see that the security was coming together with the, the economic, that the domestic was coming together with the international so that was a big part of our our mission with the book, I think. Um, uh, sort of beyond the specific argument of the book, that was something that we want people to take seriously. Well, just to build on what Brian said, I mean, perhaps the um, theoretical motivation um, and conceptualization in the book is that we brought the security and uh, international political um, economy dimensions together in the model that informs the narrative and the uh, empirical analysis throughout the book. And in particular, what we tried to look at was the ways in which um, divisions um, or the politics of guns versus butter interacts on the, on the military strategic side, interacts with um, questions about um, support or opposition for trade liberalization, for uh, institutional co-op, institutionalized cooperation or international cooperation and multilateral governance in institutions like the EU or the WTO. Normally, those two kind of dimensions, if you will, are treated separately, as Brian has suggested, and studied separately. And what we did in the book in a very deliberate way is we put them together and um, to use those to try to gain leverage and insight on what's happened inside Western democracies, not just since the end of the Cold War. In fact, we dial it all the way back and look at the interaction of these two, if you will, foreign policy dimensions or dimensions of foreign policy strategy to see how the, um, the connection between them has changed essentially over the past 70 years. And, and what we're, we show in the book is that there's a fundamental shift in the way that governments, parties, and voters um, treat those two dimensions or their preferences with respect to each of those dimensions. And the most arresting thing that emerges, I think, in the book, well, there's, there's several, but I think one of, the, one of the more arresting things that emerges is this gap between um, governments and their voters over questions, um, especially of um, questions having to do with trade and international institutions and, um, and multilateral governance that really begins to surface in the wake of the Cold War in the 1990s. And that gap widens and widens and widens. And it's just a, it's a matter of time before, you know, political entrepreneurs like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, um, seize on it um, and, you know, try to capitalize and, and leverage on it, um, leverage on it. The reason this is important, I think, is that far too often uh, when people talk about um, the erosion of domestic support in Western democracies for foreign policy, there's a very heavy emphasis on the security side of things, so that they look at the Iraq war, the endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the heavy uh, investment um, uh, in military power and military capabilities, and they point to that. And I think one of the things that emerges from this analysis is 
That's not the central driver of what's going on. It's more a reaction to the very heavy emphasis by, or the, uh, by Western governments beginning in the 1990s, the heavy emphasis on globalization or what economists call hyperglobalization. No, that's right. And then, um, I mean, a big part of our, our, our study is trying to figure out, uh, well, sort of trace what is happening to the positioning by different parties, different kinds of party families in, a, in, in, in Western polities. So looking at mainstream parties, looking at their counterparts on the radical left or on the radical right, um, and trying to make judgments of, you know, what positions did they take on these two dimensions that Peter summarized, the sort of characteristics of liberal internationalism that, uh, that, we, uh, that we focus on in the, in the book. On the one hand, the sort of uh, idea of commitment to, to power in, uh, um, in terms of, you know, military spending as a share of GDP, if you look at government policies. On the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, yeah, commitment to multilateral institutions and openness, trade openness, uh, policies of, of international engagement and multilateralism. And so we want to know, all right, what are the governments doing? What are the parties doing? What do the voters seem to want? Uh, there are all these challenges about getting good data. So a big part of our work was trying to find uh, a way of looking systematically over a lot of decades and, and a lot of different countries. Um, and we made all these you know, choices about how to, how to make this study uh, work. But in doing so, we are able to track how these different positions have evolved. And it, it looks the way Peter mentioned, basically that there was a long period of time, certainly into the, um, well, up until the end of the Cold War, when there seemed to be a kind of uh, harmony or overlap in the position taken by uh, governments uh, in their commitments to this liberal internationalism, compared to what you would see in the different parties, particularly the mainstream parties, which also, which also sort of com combined that sort of commitment to partnership and, and to power. Um, and you could even see it also in voter support um, uh, construed in, in, in various ways. And, um, and what happened, of course, is that that ended in the way Peter described. And for us, the big, you know, explanatory puzzle became, you know, why did that, that end? Why did we see this, you know, this widening gyre? Why do we see this, this, um, yeah, this gulf emerge between what, uh, what, what, the, what the voters are seeming to bear and want when it comes to uh, particularly these issues of, of global engagement, these issues of partnership, and on the other hand, what the governments are providing and that's where I think it's important to say what, what our core um, argument there is, uh, and that is that we actually think that uh, a really important explanation for why it is that um, for a long period of time there was a kind of consensus between these sort of parts of the polity, the governments, the voters, the parties, um, and why that seemed to uh, dissolve in the post-Cold War period has to do with two, in a sense, grand factors. And one of them is domestic, political, economic in nature. And one of them is really fundamentally about the position in the international security environment. And so here again, you see the, the importance for us, at least, of bringing those together in our explanation. On the one hand, we thought and believe and argue that uh, the development of social protection, social policies, uh, and a successful and I think widely shared success in the domestic political economy was a big part of why people were willing to support a combination of, of international openness or increasing openness and uh, yeah, continuing um, international engagement and, and spending on, 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 on military power. And the idea is, is taking a page from a lot of different scholarship, right? It goes back to the work of Karl Polanyi, but uh, a great many international political economy scholars who've sort of emphasized this idea that if you want to have liberalism and you want to get people to accept uh, or embrace or swallow the, the sort of vagaries of economic openness, considering the, the dislocation that can be associated with economic openness and, and for that matter, political openness, and also the costs um, uh, in terms of sacrifices when it comes to military spending, if you want to get them to accept that, you really do need to make it an inclusive political economic project. And that you do by uh, yeah, all kinds of interventions in socioeconomic life, but the most obvious is the development of the welfare state. Uh, so in the British context, the Fabian Beveridgian welfare state can be seen as part of that, that, that project. And a lot of the development of the welfare state is a sort of post-World uh, War II, sort of Cold War um, uh, achievement or, or development. Um, and a similar story for us involves the, the geopolitical side. I'm going to let Peter describe that in a, in, in a moment. But 
when it comes to the political economic story about um, this uh, liberalism, this embedding of liberalism through the welfare state, the real point that we want to emphasize is that something changed, which was really important, which is that uh, in the course of the 1980s, course of the early 1990s, for a variety of reasons, there was a, a, a tendency to sort of give up on or to, 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 to try to distance oneself from, in a sense, too much social protection. It's part of a neoliberal turn in, in economic and political life in most of the West, uh, a commitment to indeed engaging the global economy in a way that people thought was consistent with, you know, attracting and, and, and pacifying global capital, footloose capital. Um, it was also driven by ideological reasons. So, I mean, in the British context, of course, Thatcherism was more than just responding to the global uh, economy. It was really trying to push through a sort of project of, 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 of market design in, in, in economic life. Our claim is that that kind of diminution of social policy, either it's active reduce, uh, retrenchment in the case of the UK, or the failure to try and continue investing in these social protections amidst the you know, ever-growing risks, was the failure to do something in social protection that actually gave us the, the kind of a very important factor in, um, uh, behind what, uh, what we see with this you know, big gap between what we call the solvency gap between what the governments are providing and for that matter, the mainstream parties are selling uh, you know, more globalism and, and what the voters uh, seem to be uh, wanting, something less. But this story is not the whole story. So a big part of it is, is, is the geopolitical side of the game. And I'll let Peter say a little bit about that part of our argument. So Brian's done a great job in describing one of the two drivers, um, you know, of uh, liberal internationalism uh, from the post-war era uh, up until the 1990s and what's happened to it since. So the welfare state um, provided a lot of incentives for um, parties, uh, for leaders, parties, and voters to buy into uh, liberal internationalism. Um, and, but another factor was the Cold War itself. And that's because the Cold War had a kind of disciplining effect on politics in Western democracies. It was very difficult to get political traction if you were viewed as too soft on communism on the one hand, or too reckless or belligerent on the other, because people were worried about nuclear Armageddon and the possibility that things could really go off the rails. So most voters wanted, you know, something in between, kind of a Goldilocks solution. They didn't want it, you know, too hot, too cold. And, and, and so they were attracted towards that kind of a position that was in between, which was what liberal internationalism offered. It offered um, international cooperation on the one hand, but a reliance on military power on the other hand. So it was a kind of combination of the two. And in the context of the times, it was viewed as, I mean, it was a long distance from isolationism on the, on the one hand or supranationalism on the other. And so it kind of avoided these extreme positions. So there was a, there was during, um, you know, from, uh, certainly from, let's say the Korean War, the start of the Korean War in 1950, uh, up until the end of the Cold War, um, pressure on politicians and on parties to hew to the center. And I mean, a good example of what happened to politicians when they went too far, uh, either to the right or to the left, would be Barry Goldwater um, in 1964 um, and George uh, McGovern in 1972. Goldwater being viewed as too belligerent, too risky, McGovern being viewed as too soft. Um, and, uh, and whatever one thinks about that, that was kind of the definition uh, for the period. And so it kind of constrained, it, 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 it was a damper, if you will, um, on on politics, and it marginalized fringe parties on the left and on the right. What the end of the Cold War did was open up the political space for parties on the far left, 
and on the far right. And the thing is, is that it, it gave them an opportunity to reinvent themselves. Um, and it also left voters feeling there was less of a risk in supporting a political maverick in that setting because the, you know, the sense was, even though this is not completely true, but that the nuclear sword, you know, was not hanging over everybody's head. The Wicked Witch of the East was gone. And it, you know, this was a, a, a moment of celebration about the West victory, um, a kind of triumphalism of the post-Cold War period. And it, it really opened up the political space. And the thing is, is that these two events, these two things, the erosion of the welfare state uh, or the kind of the kind of culling or the leveling off or the flattening of social protections that begins in the 1990s and into the 2000s is not unrelated to the end of the Cold War. Because what happens is the end of the Cold War makes it possible for parties on the left and the right, gives them more political room, but it also gives mainstream leaders more political room. And they begin to double down on international openness, trade liberalization, institutionalized cooperation, multilateral institutions. During that period, there's just tremendous growth in international trade and also in the number of multilateral institutions. They grow very, very quickly in the 90s and on into the, to the 2000s. But there's a great deal of resentment that begins to bubble up in, um, in Western democracies about what's transpiring, especially because the social protections are weakening. And so as mainstream parties kind of push or double down on globalization, parties on the far left and especially on the far right begin to reposition themselves. So traditional parties on the far right, which were very laissez-faire, suddenly adopt a new platform where they begin to try to, they start pushing things like industrial policy and a stronger welfare state to try to capitalize on those voters who are feeling alienated, disenfranchised, they're disillusioned. And that's the beginning. You can begin to see at that in that period a, a kind of growth in anti-globalist, um, in anti-globalism on the right. And so the two things, the welfare state and the, and the Cold War are kind of interrelated. They reinforce each other. And so when the Cold War ends, it becomes easier for politicians, mainstream politicians, to kind of uh, reduce the level of commitment to it. And it opens up the space for those on the, on the left and especially on the far right to try to make political hay. I think a, 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 a very concrete manifestation of this argument that Peter mentions um, and that we talk about, I think, uh, at some length in the book involves uh, sort of tracing uh, what the platforms are of different kinds of political parties and trying to make some judgments of whether a particular kind of positioning pays off or does not pay off at the polls in the same election, in a sense, the subsequent year uh, or same sort of election cycle that the position is being taken. So um, what was really interesting is that, you know, supporting liber liberal internationalism and the party platforms by mainstream parties was basically an OK, uh, if even winning kind of position taking through, um, you know, through the 1960s and 70s, even in the 1980s. But certainly by the 19, late 1990s, early 2000s, taking that position turns out to be a vote loser, right? It turns off the voters. And at the same time that the mainstream parties are continuing to, you know, embrace or continue to sell this, this sort of global engagement um, story, if you look at their party platforms, you see that the radical parties are doing something quite different. In particular, the radical right parties have sort of jettisoned any sort of, uh, sort of soft peddling of global issues. They've, they've become really full-throated in their anti-global position taking, so anti-EU 
discourse is very strong, anti-international organizations, anti-trade, uh, on grounds that it's too dislocating, it's gone too far, it's too bad for, it's not good for Main Street or, or for the common, the common worker. Um, that, you know, the, the, the Chinese are stealing your jobs, this kind of, um, this kind of uh, set of claims. And it turns out that that position taking becomes a pretty strong vote winner, right? Uh, uh, if you want to predict who's going to win and who's, gonna, who's not going to, based on the, the party platform positions, if those positions matter at all to uh, vote getting, it turns out that this position taking on globalism matters. Embrace of globalism by the mainstream parties is an electoral loser. Rejecting that globalism is an electoral winner for the right, uh, to some extent for the left as well, but particularly for the radical right. So my second question, I'd like to delve a bit more into that kind of the social protection st stuff you talk about, the kind of domestic policy. So in, in the book, you write that when citizens perceive fewer threats from abroad, while at the same time facing a reduced social safety net that you've been talking about, they're less likely to endorse expansive internationalist projects. I'm really interested to know your thoughts on why this might be the case. Is it led by those political parties that are moving towards more populism, or is it coming more from, from the people themselves? Thanks. Yeah, so this, this is a really good question. And we don't, we don't have a, a, a sharp answer to this because we think the answer is both, right? Um, it turns out that there, there are scholars who try to distinguish how much um, the kinds of dynamics you, you just described are driven by parties or what are called party queuing dynamics versus, you know, more demand-led uh, sort of uh, listening to what the voter wants dynamics. Um, we believe that there's this interplay. They feed off each other. Um, we find some evidence in our sort of historical treatment and also in, in, in our statistics, our sort of quanti quantitative analysis, we find some evidence of both, right? So you see that indeed when the parties take the positions, like I was just summarizing, that seems to have implications for the, in the voting booth. And if that's true, then it, that looks a little bit like a, a, a party queuing story. Um, but we also believe that there's something fundamental about these parties responding to what they think voters want, right? So in that sense, there's this demand side story. We don't know exactly what direction it's going when it comes to who has the, the agency. So our position has been kind of that we don't really know, but it doesn't matter to us too much because we see these as synergistic. We see these as recursively and positively relating to each other. The important part of your question is why would a voter or a party, a person in a polity, respond to the structural conditions of, you know, declining social protection or the structural condition of declining uh, geopolitical threat by thinking, you know what, I want, I want less globalism. And the answer is that um, globalism isn't free for a lot of people. Um, it's certainly not free if you look at it from the point of view of somebody who's less skilled in, in a Western setting like uh, the UK or, or the Netherlands, for that matter. Those are the people who are disproportionately subjected to risks each time there's a sort of another year of embracing and deepening um, sort of uh, global interconnectedness. And there's also a, just a general sense that people have that um, they're losing sovereignty, they're losing some control. And it's understandable that if you don't have a rally around the flag kind of concern or a geopolitical um, disciplining effect uh, that we associate with the Cold War or, or through some other geopolitical dynamic, or threat. If you don't have that, then you can imagine that people start to think, think, you know, bring the boys home, bring the institutions home. We could use them here. The investment should be here at home. Uh, why take the risk? Why uh, spend money and resources uh, elsewhere? I think that that's the the broad dynamic. I think what informs people's response, both voters and 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 their parties. Sort of a, an aligned question to that is, so according to Pew, the wealth gap between America's richest and poorest, poorest families more than doubled from 1989 to 2016, which is sort of the time period you're covering in the book. To what extent is much of the public's reaction of, of globalism since the end of the Cold War a reaction to the rising inequality they face and maybe the lack of opportunity that the working class in the US and beyond might be perceiving? I mean, I think, you know, that's clearly part of the, the, the issue here or the problem. Um, and, um, but I, I think the, the larger issue is the one that Brian was just kind of touching on, which is the sense of economic insecurity um, that people feel. And inequality plays into that, but it's the sense that one is vulnerable to the vicissitudes of kind of international life, of 
trade flows and so forth in a way that they were not before, um, partly because they don't feel like their governments have their backs in the way that they once did. So, I mean, I think the, the key thing is, is it's, it's the economic um, insecurity side of it um, is probably, I think, you know, at least our analysis focuses really more on how that has kind of shaped the preferences of voters and, and parties as opposed to um, inequality in, um, in democratic societies. But that's not to say that the two are, you know, um, uh, different. They're to- they're related, and so they're they're connected. And so, in a sense, you know, it's uh, inequality only um, reinforces the kind of insecurities that we're we're focused on uh, and tracking um, um, in the book. And I I think the thing is is that um, your question was also. How does the lack of a, a threat, you know, kind of elevate that as a concern? And I think it does it in, in, in a couple of ways. I mean, w- one is um, the lack of a threat m- has made it less uh, critical um, for Western leaders to invest heavily in social protection. That is, to try to maintain as globalization was increasing, and it's not just globalization, as automation is expanding and so forth, to kind of redouble or double down on social protection to try to keep pace with the risks that are being introduced through that economic, um, through those economic policies and in behavior. Um, You know, one of the things that, um, you know, kind of came out of this analysis, I think that that we did that I, I think is underappreciated is that the Cold War not only had a disciplining effect on party politics and that it, you know, um, it marginalized extreme voices, but it also reinforced the commitment of mainstream party leaders, presidents, prime ministers, their commitment to the welfare state and to providing economic security for their citizens. And the reason it did that is because the Cold War wasn't only an arms race. It was a welfare race as well. And what Western leaders had to demonstrate was that capitalism, democratic capitalism, was as every bit a good deal as, um, you know, as, as Soviet communism, that that, you know, or to put it another way, that communism was not the worker's paradise that many people thought. And, you know, there's a great line from uh, Eric Hobsbawm, the the, uh, uh, British historian, who said, you know, he said, um, Stalin may not have been very good for Russians, but he was very good for the average Western worker. And what he meant was that the Soviet challenge communism put pressure on Western leaders to make sure to cover basically Western workers' needs and to ensure that they did not feel insecure uh, and that they could see a better life for themselves and for their kids. And when that threat was removed, the, the incentives that it created for Western leaders were also loosened. I want to add add something to what Peter just mentioned about this specific inequality question that uh, that you ask, which is um, that indeed the the story that we tell and that we emphasize is about the risks or the economic insecurities, the general insecurities associated with the end of the Cold War, and then obviously with um, you know deepening globalism, so trade liberalization, capital openness, but also just commitments to international institutions involves creating uh, changes in rules that, that subject citizens to, to the vagaries of openness that, uh, that might, might make them feel insecure. That's the key part of our story. But it's important to recognize that an intervening link in that story is inequality. So to the extent that you have substantial embrace of these multilateral international institutions by your policy, in, in your policies by your elites, you're going to have a situation where there is rising inequality, right? The, 
the inequality that that Western countries saw increase in that period of time that you're mentioning is not completely to thank um, uh, globalization for, but globalization plays a really important uh, role. It's not just automation. It really is trade openness, uh, particularly towards um, China and South, Southeast Asia, East Asia, um, and, and capital openness, uh, investment and uh, direct and, and portfolio investment uh, openness. Um, those conditions, in a sense, are really important for why inequality emerges the way it does as such a big sort of out, outscaled problem by, by, the, by the 2000s. Um, but we don't look at that explicitly. So our assumption is that if we were to, you know, redo our analyses and try to include measures of inequality, um, then that would be part of the intervening story that would, in a sense, explain away some of the dynamics that we look, like, look at. Um, so inequality plays this role for us, but it's only sort of a, sort of an intervening condition when we think that the real driving story is about these commitments to globalism and yeah, the, the, the slack associated with uh, geopolitical change at the end of the Cold War. One of the things, we are not saying that the liberal order is, was or is God's gift to like the world. The liberal order, the Western-led liberal order during the Cold War, did a lot of crazy things. The war in Vietnam, you know, and in the post-Cold War era, the war in Iraq. These are, you know, many things in the name of uh, the liberal order were damaging to that order, um, but also, um, you know, led to tragic consequences for people on the ground. Um, and it's also true, it's, you know, the liberal order was never, uh, certainly during the Cold War, an inclusive world order. More than half of the world was outside the liberal order. It was principally a Western order. You know, and it, and some countries were outside by choice. Others were kept out of the of the liberal order by Western leaders, by Western governments, and even within Western governments, it was never at Western democracies. It was never as inclusive, you know, as some would have it. In the United States, I mean. You know, minorities never had the same kind of political rights and uh, economic security um, that, um, you know, uh, white Americans had. Um, and, um, and in many countries, uh, immigrants were treated differently. They didn't have the same access to the kind of social provisions and social goods that um, kind of you know, insiders had. And, and, and so it's important not to, you know, um, uh, um, it, it's, it, it's, in, it's important not to exaggerate uh, how liberal and how inclusive uh, the liberal order was, um, you know, compared to the alternatives, you know, it had a lot of value. But on its own terms, there were certainly plenty of limitations. Thank you. So part of your story is about the decline of the political center in the West. So I'm interested to know your thoughts on what Western democracies can do to revive that political center now in the face of this, this rising populism and this rejection of globalism. So it's a great question, and it's a tough question. And, you know, there's a, there's a debate that's really uh, unfolding uh, over this. And in the last chapter of the book, we outline three different positions that, um, you know, we, we think are going to kind of divine the debate over the next uh, five to ten, ten years in, in Western democracies. And, and you know, um, w one call is for um, the West to um, trim its international commitments. Um, to pull back, to retrench, um, to invest less um, in international institutions, to invest less in international openness, to rely less on it. 
Some versions of this involve kind of putting up walls, tariff barriers, and so forth. Um, more generally, there's a kind of just a, a sense that the United, United States, and, and I think this argument is perhaps more salient in the U.S. than it is in, in, in other Western democracies, although you can see it there as well, that there needs to just be a kind of a, uh, a more restraint and a kind of a, and a pullback. A second position that has gotten a lot of currency, um, especially in Washington, is that one of the ways the West can try to rebuild the center is to find a common enemy, a geopolitical challenger, a threat, something that can, um, like the Soviet threat, you know, the argument goes, can kind of pull... Western democracies can provide solidarity among Western democracies, and importantly, cohesion within them. Um, and the country that is singled out in most of these discussions, of course, is China. And so there's a lot of discussion about, um, you know, um, how uh, China um, can, uh, concern about China, but also proposals, and not just from the right, you can see this on the left as well, um, that, that China can provide um, a vehicle for advancing other policies, perhaps um, social policies, you know, policies to make, uh, high-tech policies to make uh, the United States more competitive uh, internationally and in, in international markets. And so that's a that's a, a you know another argument that is is out there that has real legs and currency. We come down in a different position. I mean, our, our our view is that the first argument about putting up walls or retrenching is really not going to solve the problem, and that you know that the China challenge um, is um, you know one really needs to be careful of analogies with. Um, kind of the Cold War. I mean, you know, the argument that we make in the book is that an external threat did provide a disciplining, had a disciplining effect on politics in the West. But the commitment to social democracy, the commitment to the welfare state, the commitment to social protection was equally strong. And so without that commitment, Relying on a threat, a kind of lowest common denominator, a foreign threat, is really not going to be enough to address and solve the problem, or to put it another way, to close the gap between where Western governments are and where their voters are. And so where that leads us is to the argument uh, at, the, at the very end of the book that if you want to rebuild the center— you need a new set of policies, economic and political policies, that are designed to address the problem of economic insecurity um, uh, head on. Um, and there's movement in this direction. I mean, you can see this in some of Biden's policies and and in some of the policies uh, taking unfolding in um in, in Europe as well, but a lot more needs to be done on this side. Um, and, and in fact, I think it's not just more money, it's the more a new kind of thinking. I mean, thinking about the problem, you can't just go back to kind of post-war social protection and the post-war welfare state. What's required at this point is thinking about work in a different way. What's required at this point is not only thinking about individuals, but thinking about communities that have been really hollowed out um, by globalization, by automation, by the trends that we describe, uh, you know, that have emerged, over, you know, that taken place or unfolded over the last uh, 30 years. So we've kind of, we cover each of these and our, you know, our sense is that if you're going to put your money uh, anywhere, um, the place to put it 
is on on the on the domestic side and reinvesting domestically in a way that makes Western democracies more competitive and better prepared for geopolitical competition in the future as well. I have nothing to add other than to emphasize that that domestic political reform agenda, sort of our answer to how you can, uh, to take our title from foreign affairs, uh, make the center vital again, um, that set of changes are um, completely consistent with a maintenance and a deepening of the liberal internationalism that was the starting point for our project. So our claim, our expectation is that if you do see that shoring up of the domestic political economic compromises, uh, recognition of threats without overstating them, if we see that kind of reshuffling through reform and renewal of the domestic political economic program, and it really is as much political economic as it is a security animal, if we see that, then we actually see the, the, the you know, uh, what is now seen as a sort of a crisis-laden liberal internationalism. We see one that could, uh, yeah, have a much stronger political basis, a much broader political basis uh, in Western democracies. Um, and by that, we mean a deepening of liberal international commitments, the partnership that we look at, a deepening, indeed, of preparedness militarily to, to try and, and, and lead the world uh, uh, or to help try to help contribute to uh, the leading of the world in a in a humane direction. So in the end, our our we have a defense of liberal internationalism that really focuses on its shoring up through this domestic political economic program. Thank you. So there's been a lot of positivity there, and you talked about potential avenues uh, for change. But I'd love to know what's your greatest worry about Western democracies today. Well, I think the short answer to that, I mean, my, my concern is that, um, that Western leaders will try to solve this problem, to try to close this gap between kind of international ambition and domestic political capacity by resorting to kind of lowest common denominator um, xenophobic, um, uh, to, resorting to, uh, to foreign threats as the kind of lowest common denominator, as a way to kind of pull people together, create cohesion, um, and to, you know, strengthen uh, solidarity um, um, uh, across the West. And I think you saw some of that in the response by, you know, a number of rather prominent prominent uh, Western commentators to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And there was a sense that the West was back, that this was a centering experience for Western democracies, um, and that, um, uh, you know, that having a kind of international, a geopolitical challenge like that provided a new sense of international purpose. And, you know, what I would say is over the past year, we've also seen anti-globalism in the midst of all this um, strengthen, whether it's in France or in Sweden or in Italy. And so its roots, it's not, you know, it hasn't stopped because of Putin's invasion. And, and I think the thing is, is that you know, the danger is trying to address the real problem through, um, this is not to say that the West should not have responded to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's that it alone is not going to solve the, what ails Western democracies at this time. I guess the only thing I'll add is that my, my, my biggest fear is uh, a sort of a, a party political manifestation of the same thing Peter just mentioned. So it really means that uh, we can see that in the strategies of different actors to try to, you know, shore up um, the, legitimacy, the legitimacy and support for the liberal international project, you can see, um, you know, all kinds of a jubilation at some moments than total despair at the other, depending on what's, what's going on in the international sphere. Um, some activity indeed in, in, in addressing the domestic, poli domestic political economic project that, 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 that we've been summarizing, 
So it's not like there's nothing going on, but they've been doing something there. And the real threat are all the different political actors who reject that course of action, right? So the, the idea that, 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 that the real issue, a real solution is this sort of panacea of, of a new Cold War, either, you know, with a new Soviet Union, a sort of new Russian empire, a la um, sort of post-Ukraine confrontation with Russia, or indeed, more obviously, and I think more enduringly, the, the, the China threat, um, that's a big part of what is going on in these politics. So I'm expecting that to happen. You can see a lot of actors on the political right, some on, on the political center, who are really thinking that that's where the game and where the action is. So including some of the parties and groupings we associate with the vital center have not necessarily um, sort of um, taken our kind of advisorized our way of thinking of things uh, very seriously. And then, of course, if you then look outside of these, these center uh, right or center left party uh, actors and commentators, and you look to the extremes in politics, those extremes are, are not just alive and well, they're actually growing in many ways. They're actually taking advantage of, in a sense, the costs of trying to do something to deal with, with, with the, the Ukrainian and, and, and China threat. Um, uh, they're as happy as ever to talk about the ills associated with, uh, global connectedness. They feel emboldened by, uh, moves towards more protectionism. They want to just sort of speed that up. So in party political terms, um, there are actors in the center who are either asleep or not taking seriously the reform effort that we want. They're misguided in a sense in, in the reform trajectories they choose, uh, or worse, these radical voices, particularly on the radical right, um, are really poised to take over these, these politics. Um, and, and if that's true, then I think that we're in real trouble. So you've, you've talked about the, the eroding foundations of liberal internationalism in these countries. What are the implications of that? Why is that important? Why does it matter? So that's, I mean, that's a really important question, and it's an important question partly because both Peter and I are aware of, uh, in a sense, the less than rosy reputation, I think, uh, less than rosy history and, and, and track record of, um, you know, the project associated with liberal internationalism. Um, you know, a lot of domestic political economies that have supported liberal internationalism in, in the past have been engaged in abuses or departures from what should be, you know, the embrace of, of real liberalism and multilateralism, violated the rights of other nation states and so on. Anyway, there are all kinds of reasons to think you know, who cares if liberal internationalism, you know, takes a bath. Um, and, and our answer, I mean, we both have our own answers that involve, uh, you know, a lot of other uh, projects beyond this book. But in the book, we have an answer um, that involves looking at how the erosion of the domestic foundations for liberal internationalism are not only creating problems for the domestic consensus, the existence of a vital center to support liberal internationalism, um, you know, that we might defend as a, as a good thing in our own sort of academic ivory tower. It's also important to look at how it has implications beyond the domestic political project um, and for the actual international developments that we associate with uh, a liberal international order, a liberal international international order. So not a foreign policy question, but what is going on in international politics? And we, we find, for example, or we explore how the fragmentation of the domestic political economic project is, you know, part of the story that we tell, the, the sort of crumbling of the vital center that's supporting um, uh, the liberal international project, the rise of radical right parties, also, also radical left, but particularly ra radical right parties that are, in a sense, running away from that liberal international project. We look at the consequences of all that stuff for uh, a variety of sort of, in a sense, um, features, really important features of an international liberal order. We see, for example, that the erosion of the mainstream, the fragmentation of the party system, party system is declining downstream subsequent embrace of economic globalization and political globalization. We're seeing that the same domestic political economic developments, the fragmentation of the party system, the rise of the radical right, that that's also undermining the, in a sense, the political currency of the West in voting settings like the UN General Assembly. So we have some data where we look at how the tendency of non-Western countries to vote with Western powers goes down, all of the things being equal, to the extent that there's more fragmentation and a, you know, a stronger rise of, of, of these radical uh, parties. Um, so the consequences for, you know, in a sense, the 
the, the influence of the West in the world seems to be uh, going down. And finally, we have evidence that um, the same conditions, the political economic fragmentation, the political fragmentation, the rise of the radical right, the, the decline of the vital center in a party political sense, that that's also tending to um, be associated with, in a sense, a, a, a decrease or at least a flattening in the tendency of international organizations like the EU, the GATT, the WHO, to continue to command support and delegation by other countries. So the quality of the international order in economic terms, in basic sort of West influence terms, and in terms of an international institutional environment that is multilateral and cooperative in character, that's under threat. And we think that the answer has to do with this, this story about the vital center. I can just add a couple things here because so this is is great and you know we you know the we had this chapter called we have a chapter that's called reaping the whirlwind and so it's kind of it's about the consequences of fragmentation inside Western democracies and Brian has just focused and very nicely summarized the international kind of knock on effects of domestic fragmentation in 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 Western democracies. But it's also having a problem or an effect on the democracies themselves. Fragmentation, polarization leads to paralysis. And it makes it increasingly difficult for these democracies to deliver on what their voters actually want, right? So it makes it harder to deliver on climate policy. It makes it harder to deliver in the United States on expansion of healthcare. You know, it makes it harder for um, on any number of uh, issues or policies that we know from looking at public opinion polls that voters want, that the public wants, to actually be able to deliver because it makes it increasingly difficult to put winning coalitions together to pass programmatic policy. So, and this is this is true of the United States, but it's also it's true. You see the same kind of thing in other Western democracies. Thank you for that. Um, I just have we have a few more minutes, so I just want to finish off with one question, kind of going back to your approach, because there's been a, a huge amount of writing on populism and domestic policy, but your approach bringing together the geopolitics and the domestic policy is is novel. Why do you think it's taken so long to get to this point, to, 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 for, for people to write in this way? Is it a data thing? Is it, is it a kind of a, uh, the walls between disciplines? How did, how did you get to this point, to this? And, and what more in this kind of, would you, are you planning on working on or would you like to see? Yeah. Um, well, let me take a first crack at that and then, and then Peter can... Um, say what the real answer is. <laughs> um, so the, the first thing to say is that plenty of people who study populism will look at, at tendrils or aspects of what we're looking at. So there's, there's a synthetic quality to our work, to our book, where we're trying to bring together really the insights of a lot of this research to, and it's not just repackaging it in new bottles, but it is bringing together a lot of insights. So for example, the idea that, you know, a big part of populism involves, you know, responding to you know, global pressures or to, um, you know, overstretch in an, a globalization story um, that has echoes in plenty of, in plenty of work. Um, but it is true that very, very few people bring it together fully, certainly not the security angle, uh, the geopolitical angle. And I think that part of the reason is what we started out saying about our motivation for the book, that people who study comparative politics tend not to read or care or look that much at geopolitical debates, grand strategy questions, international relations questions in a high politics sense of that, of that phrase. And, and we think that that's a mistake. I mean, because those really are informing um, domestic political fights, party political fights that we see uh, going on in the last 30 years. Um, and the same is true for, um, you know, the, the, in a sense, the, the broad international domestic divides, so not just sort of security and political economy, but, but international domestic. So, People who study populism really are thinking about um, very often close to home questions of left-right issues or close to home questions of, of, of uh, national traditionalism. Um, they, they include issues of xenophobia in there. It gets packaged together with conservatism of various kinds, anti, 
um, uh, cosmopolitan sort of sentiments. But there's a tendency to to um, elide what is really going on there, which is that 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 dimension of looking at um, not just the left right issues, but looking at uh, sort of cosmopolitan issues and traditionalism issues as alternatives. That's really related to what we emphasize, which is this anti-globalism, nationalism versus uh, international engagement as a as a position taking. So we think that that that's you know the corrective is needed partly because indeed the 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 pillarization or the the silos of of the study of comparative politics and of international relations have been hard to. To, to, to allow us to br bring this together. But again, I want to end by saying that it's not like we're saying something completely or shatteringly new. We are bringing it together, I think, in a way that, that, is, that is new, um, but it's uh, bringing together ideas that certainly echo with a lot of published work uh, by our colleagues. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe just uh, the only thing I would, I would add, I agree with uh, what Brian has, has said. Um, you know, I, I, I do think um, that for a long time, um, the disciplines were, they were never hermetically sealed and kind of like the study of comparative politics had nothing to do with, you know, what was going on in international relations and people who worked on American politics had no connection to folks who worked on, I don't know, like foreign policy or international security. But there was a division of labor, and um, and it was reinforced, I think, in you know through all the kind of normal disciplinary. It, part of it is disciplinary gatekeeping, the incentive structures, and so forth that exist. I, I think a lot of that has, you know, what, what I would say is I think the last ten to fifteen years have really worn those barriers down, that people are kind of much more open to thinking about problems that lie at the intersection or trying to think about how security considerations might affect the types of things that scholars of comparative politics focus on or that... Um, that that people who work on security policy, I mean, this is an I'm in the, you know do a lot of work in international security. I I can say over the, you know the the course of my career that I can see a much greater appetite for bringing domestic politics into the analysis than existed uh, at at an earlier point in time, and I think there's just a sense that some of these problems, like the rise of anti-globalism, really cannot be tackled from one, you know, from only one angle or from one subfield of political science or, you know, sociology or, or history in a, a sense that these problems, in a sense, are, are boundary crossing. And um, and that you you need to adopt a kind of I don't know more you know um, open perhaps I mean I don't know that this is the right word but uh, a more holistic framework where you're looking at the interaction across these subfields and and disciplines and kind of triangulating to get a handle on it I don't think the problem per se you asked this at the outset is data. I mean, data is always an issue, you know, like good data and, you know, to, you know, can you, if you've, if you've got a problem, can you really wrestle it down to the ground, let's say with statistical data. But as Brian suggested, there's a lot of really good work, some of it very detailed, forensic case study work on, let's say on populism, that's really valuable. And that you can, you know, if you come at this problem, um, you know, from a, maybe a more kind of security angle, you can draw on. I mean, there's, there's a vast reservoir of data, information, case studies uh, to work with, I think. Just remains for me to say, Professor Peter Tubers, Professor Brian Bergoon, thank you so much for speaking to the ballpark today. Thank Great you. to be with you, Chris. Thanks very much. Thank you. 
Brian Bergoon is Professor of International and Comparative Political Economy in the Department of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam. Professor Peter Trubowitz is Professor of International Relations and Director of the Phelan U.S. Center at LSE and Associate Fellow at Chatham House. They launched their new book, Geopolitics and Democracy, at the LSE Department of International Relations event, Anti-Globalism and the Future of the Liberal World Order, on the 9th of May, 2023. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Peter Trubowitz and Professor Brian Bergoon for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. A theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us, and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>